going to dance. We're going to dance. We're going to dance and have some fun. Hi guys, welcome back to Stargirl. It's Emma. Today is Monday, December 11th, 2023. Um, yeah, man, it's, I feel like it's been a long time since I've recorded. I turned 30 last week, which was awesome. Um, and I did hit my 10 pull-ups, so we hit that goal. However, I watched the video back and the form was atrocious. And... I was like using a lot of momentum, like it was it wasn't pretty. So obviously you want to give yourself grace and I'm very proud that I was even able to do that at all, but I know that I wasn't training them consistently or following a plan. And I don't know, it just made me reflect on like in how many other areas I let myself fly by the seat of my pants. Um so I was just thinking about that and and instead wanting to bring forward into my fitness goals and this project and all areas of my life, just more consistency and more more dedication and follow through with like a tried and true structure and less like procrastinating on it and then overcompensating and then like doing some crazy push of energy that ends up depleting me and then like crossing the finish line, but in such an inelegant way. <laughs> so... Anyways, that's what I've been reflecting on. Um, but um, the pull-up metaphor aside, I am feeling super grateful for my health and my loved ones and for Stargirl. Um, and especially it was like Spotify wrapped the other week and um, several of you like either shared on your stories or DM'd me or whatever that um, Stargirl was among your top listen podcasts. And that was so sick. That was so awesome to see. Um, really made me so happy. So thank you for sharing with me and for listening. Um, and so if you love Stargirl, follow it on Spotify or wherever, leave a review, five-star rating, share it, tell your friends, like, yeah, you can keep speaking truth to power. <laughs> Um, okay, so before we get to the little bit of Stargirl news I have, um, I wanted to address the subject of today's episode, Miss Bianca Gaver, because I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that very few, if any of you, know who she is. So Bianca is a radio and film producer. She's done work for like This American Life, The New Yorker, The Daily. She has her own podcast called Constellation Prize now. And um, she, almost a decade ago now, like created a couple like viral Vimeo videos. Okay, this sounds so random, but it will make sense once I tell you <laughs> the context for speaking of her. Anyways, I have a quasi-personal connection to her because she went to my high school, Garfield High School in Seattle, Washington. Uh, but I've actually never met her. So she graduated before I even got to school. So like she was a senior when I was an eighth grader, if that makes sense. So I've never met her, although I have emailed her like 10 years ago when I was like really lost. Um, anyways, but she had this legend status in my high school well before she started creating work that was getting a lot of praise. She was always just a super cool girl. This idea of Bianca Gaver, like the coolest girl you've ever met, reverberated through the halls of our high school in the, in the grades beneath her. And so I learned about her like my first semester in high school and was just I guess aware that she typified a 
genre of girl that was really valued in my high school and all through the time that I was there it seemed like we like Garfield really had like a hangover and like this almost like mourning of her because she was just like the coolest chick that all the other girls were trying to emulate even if they didn't know they were trying to emulate her. Um, and I'll get into the specifics of her vibes um, later on. But but that was the, that was the deal with her. Um, and then when I was in college, I got super into her work, her videos specifically. Yeah, she was kind of the, the only person that I knew from my like high school that was like doing stuff vaguely in the realm and ethos that I thought I wanted to create work in. And mostly I was just super lost and didn't know what the hell I wanted. The point is I followed her very closely at this time and I got totally obsessed with her work for a period of maybe, maybe like three, four years, like 2012 to 2016, like the years I was in college and really felt like I want to be her. Like why did she get to be born four years before me and make the exact videos that I want to make and like everything about her life is like I should have it <laughs> anyways my point with all of this is that she was a star girl within the context of my high school being this like the the emblem of a vibe that everybody else tried to emulate and then she was furthermore a star girl in my own perception of the landscape and what I wanted in my life and what I felt was available to me or not. Um, and she, yeah, she really was like a guiding light that I loved, feared, was jealous of, tried to dismiss, like would find myself coming back to, etc. cetera. Um, and this idea of like one spot, particularly one spot that you were supposed to have, I think is kind of critical to the hierarchy of Stargirl um, that we talk about. Like there's there's a, definitely a scarcity factor around them, right? So it's, it's, it's this feeling of knowing deep down that in fact there are not infinite seats at the table, particularly in bounded communities like schools or workplaces or clubs or something. There is a natural order that tends to fall, right? In kind of like the high school lunchroom of the world where people naturally step into leadership roles or terrorizer roles or court jester roles or sex object roles or like reliable workhorse roles or whatever, right? And so um, while I didn't know anything about Bianca as a like social leader or like I didn't know much about her personality or like how she how she behaved at a party, was she's the center of attention, was she standing in a corner, whatever, that wasn't so much part of it for me, but it was more like it was this girl that I knew was highly respected in the value system of where I grew up and specifically of my high school. And then she was creating work that I felt was like, I didn't quite say it right the first time. It was like it was just out of grasp for me to be able to produce that. Either I didn't have the resources, I was a little bit too young, I was a little bit too lost. Like, And so her creating these pretty high production value for like the tools at her disposal when she was like a senior at Middlebury College. I was like, oh, like if only I could just have the follow through that she has and like the kind of self-respect to like see the projects through, you know, what what could I make, you know? And so point being is she was a person that I fixated on for this period of time in my late teens, early 20s. Um, and I want to tell you about that. <laughs> um, 
yeah, you know, I talk all the time about how a star girl can exist really at any tier of fame. She can be a megawatt celebrity. She can be a like internet girl. She can be like somebody within your own social scene. And actually one of the biggest requests that I get is to do a like personal star girl episode, which is insane. Like to air that dirty laundry is really um, wild, but I'm down for the cause and I, um, I hope Bianca sees the vision. <laughs> It kind of needs to get weirder before it gets less weird, you know? Anyways. Okay, I don't have a ton of Stargirl news, but a couple of things. Um, first of all, this was just announced today. Lena Dunham has a new TV show, which is wild. Um, yeah, it's it's called Too Much. It's going to be on Netflix. It's with um, Meg Stalter and um, – what's this dude's name? Will Sharp. Um, but of the stuff that I've seen that she's worked on – in the past couple of years, none of it is like anywhere near as good as girls, obviously, but it feels just important that she's continuing to um, create. <laughs> well, you guys know I had that like really intense preoccupation that she was like not going to be okay. It really deeply affected me and like worried me. So I'm just happy to see that she's fine. Um, anyways, but that's happening. Nothing more to say about that. Um, but I want to talk about mainly two recent things. One is Kim as GQ's man of the year. And two is Taylor Swift as Time's person of the year. Because I think they s kind of speak to different sides of the same issue, which is like, where is womanhood? <laughs> and it's kind of related to the campy femininity issue that we discussed earlier this year that I keep bringing up. Yeah, it's this feeling that we're not able to like faithfully and interestingly portray or explore womanhood, right? That there's these these two poles were either shoved into like hyper girlish, like Emily in Paris, Barbie type shit, or it's mommy bloggers and true crime, right? So that feeling that there's not like a culture produced for young women that aren't going to put themselves in one of these two poles and B, that we don't even have interesting portrayals of I don't even know what we're what we're looking for when we say womanhood. If we're trying to pin that to an age or something, it's like pre-children, post like messy early 20s, which I think just a lot of us find ourselves in as opposed to 30, 50 years ago, whatever. But anyways, um, the point is that there's this feeling of almost like female erasure, if you will, that we can't just take this concept of womanhood at face value and actually feel like it's done justice, feel like it's a compelling type, feel like it's, um, yeah, faithful or urgent or raw in any way, or even just like entertaining to a certain extent. Um, a simplistic way to view it is like, where is the sex in the city like for, for today? But as I said, this isn't just about culture produced for this demographic, but about not even like seeing interesting portrayals of it, like ed editorially. And so I think taking... Kim as GQ's man of the year and Taylor Swift as Times person of the year is like this kind of speaks to that um so in the first instance with Kim we have the like spoof of you know powerful ambitious beautiful woman as masculine and then on the other while Times person of the year isn't explicitly concerned with gender Taylor Swift and her fans are often criticized for being just incredibly juvenile, right? Like that the that the music itself is really young and unevolved, that the costuming and just the whole way that she presents herself represents this cling to youth in a way that doesn't feel cool. It, yeah, it just feels like a refusal to 
elevate yourself or something like this. So anyways, I don't want to be like searching for meaning here. Like it could just be a like, it's not that deep thing. Like obviously like whatever these two like arbitrary legacy awards don't need to say anything about the state of things, obviously. But <laughs> but I do think these two instances represent common tendencies. Taylor Swift as like juvenile girlish, let's just like keep this inoffensive safe boring and Kim as like okay let's recode this as masculine you know and obviously that shoot was like just an extremely on the nose homage to her dad with the styling and the being in the um in the skyscraper over like overlooking LA whatever and and she's talking a lot about her dad in the interview so like it's it's all sweet and totally fine um but you know I think of Kim as actually a rare example of a celebrity who is doing womanhood very sincerely and aggressively and like kind of cooler than basically everybody else like she doesn't opt into the performance of frump and exhaustion of motherhood she maintains her idea of herself as a sex object even as she ages and arguably has never looked better honestly she's super ambitious and hardworking. so yeah it's just kind of interesting where it's like okay if we're apparently so starved for a model of femininity and womanhood that sits somewhere between the these two poles we keep talking about like Kim might be it and then this GQ editorial is kind of like okay what why are we (laughs) why do we have to take it there um but anyways um I do want to talk about Taylor Swift a little bit more though I have less to say about the time person of the year stuff I don't feel like I have a ton of new thoughts on that it's like yeah the shoot was super weird she looks awkward the images are not compelling I don't know I do feel like she probably has made a lot of economic contributions this year. So, like, probably she is the person of the year. Like, um, just from, like, a search standpoint. But, um, um, but anyways, no, what I want to talk about with her is I want to revisit the threat of her. So, um, in the last episode, when Sally Dare was on, she gave her perspective on it, which was essentially that Taylor Swift is so graceful and poised and such a professional that like she never cracks it's almost kind of like she's too she's too perfect she's too intact um so that was really interesting just to hear like a super fan account um although it it didn't super resonate with me just like not being a swifty um so i think for me the threat of taylor swift is really intertwined with her whiteness and like her being one of the highest profile white women in the world it feels like she's creating or furthering a particular definition around whiteness that feels really scary to me because I don't want to be associated with it if that makes sense so her particular expression of whiteness maintains an understanding of whiteness as uncool unsexy not sensual not primal right and instead very safe stiff and uh potentially also like not talented like it's only her privilege and ambition that got her there not any of these other like eternal fiery gifts of a star you know and so obviously as a white girl this presents its own threat because it shows me my ceiling right so the threat of taylor swift says you could be the most popular pop star in the world the most streamed female artist in the world the highest grossing touring act of all time and still not be cool still not be sexy be eye rolled at by your peers right and this extends beyond taylor swift as well in just to, like you know the kingdom of basic bitchness any white girl i think can relate to this if you've had a period of time where you're trying to distance yourself 
yourself from the potential misread of you as like basic normie that any sort of kind of like unnecessary alt coding of yourself even it wasn't it wasn't faithful to who you were just because the risk of being seen as a stiff uninteresting boring basic white girl is like so intense if that makes sense um and similarly back to the question I posed in the Zendaya episode, like what does it mean if this person is the standard for femininity? Under Taylor Swift's reign, it means that womanhood is chaste, cold, hardworking, poised, but not wild, unruly, sexy, free. And, and furthermore, it means femininity is about effort, labor, and strategizing, right? Like she's kind of like meritocracy bay in a certain way where it's like I've earned it because I kept – working so hard and not that those aren't admirable qualities I mean I could certainly benefit from being a harder worker but um I don't know this 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 whole threat with whiteness and femininity and lack of like sex appeal I guess with Taylor Swift is very it's almost like the inverse of Zendaya where like you know if if the threat of Zendaya was we want to be able to brush her off as a diversity hire but she's actually so legit that the argument completely falls apart like Taylor Swift is almost the somehow like related and inverse to that if that makes sense Anyways, I just think this is important to acknowledge because I think a lot of like haters of Taylor Swift can't even acknowledge that that there is a threat baked in. They can only like cling tightly to their opinion that she's like not a good performer, not hot, not cool, like like brings out like the worst, most childish impulses in her female fans or whatever. Um, But I think like – there clearly is a threat. Like you wouldn't be clinging so hard to your haterdom and to your identity as a not Taylor Taylor Swift friend and like forming a weird superiority complex around that if it wasn't actually threatening. Anyway, so there can be lots of other threats. But for me, I think it's like the the threat is the risk that I be grouped in with my demographic. You know, and that's a really crazy place to be, to be like, oh, for the love of God, please do not make the mistake of thinking that I'm a white girl, which I am. Do you know what I mean? Anyways. <laughs> okay, so let's get into the Bianca. Okay, so as I mentioned, Bianca Gaver is a radio and film producer, but she had a very specific style. And as I mentioned, she was going viral on like Vimeo in the mid 2010. So, oh, and I should have said a lot of her videos, it's like she does an audio interview um, either with one person or she like, you know, collects audio stories, I guess, and then almost sets them to video. If that makes sense. So there is kind of a collage aspect of it because the video is almost like illustrating the audio. I'll, I'll get into her style more, but it has this quite storybook-like quality um, because, as I said, the video is, like, animating the the audio, which was recorded without a plan for the visuals, um, or at least that's how it reads. Anyway, so the first video of hers that really took off was this one called The Scared is Scared, which I would be curious if any of you guys saw. So, yeah, it went super viral on Vimeo, and then she got a lot of other projects out of that. As I mentioned, she ended up working for, like, This American Life and The Daily and um, 
I'm pretty sure like a radio lab, like anything in that whole genre of, of like high production value, audio work, radio stories type thing. And she did like a campaign video for Rachel Antonoff's clothing line in 2014, which I actually think I talked about in the Lean Dunham episode. Um, oh, and I should have said also she um, now has her own podcast called Constellation Prize, which I'll link. Anyways, I'll talk more about the specifics of her work in a little bit, but the to set the tone for her project. So overall, it's like very twee, I guess. Like she's like obsessed with the mundane in this idea of like the profound within the mundane. Um, she actually said on a podcast that she was interviewed in a couple years ago, my favorite radio stories are those that are unpitchable, that are so mundane. So it's almost kind of like human condition core. So um, a lot of her pieces deal with documenting like human awkwardness and self-consciousness and like the awkwardness and pain and joy that unite us all um so yeah they can be like a little cutesy quirky like childlike goofy and um definitely is like fitting in with the like Wes Anderson kind of greater universe of that time um, and kind of like early Brooklyn hipster as well where like I feel like the posture of her characters is always like skinny dude in a like big coat with like his feet sickled in so like the toes are touching and the heels are part like pigeon footed and then like the shoulders are slightly rounded and he's obviously bespectacled you know it's like that kind of vibe um and it's always winter it's somehow always winter um anyways but I think ultimately Bianca's work is extremely sincere and so it doesn't fall into this irony hipster situation um it does take itself very seriously which it is actually kind of an intense choice if that makes sense um so even though it is so cutesy goofy and childlike it also is like really earnestly contending with the excruciating disappointment of being yourself or something like this um yeah what else I mean especially her more recent work, which I have to say I hadn't really kept up with like since maybe 2016, but in in preparing for this episode, that later stuff tends to deal more squarely with like art and art making um, and also kind of God and spirituality type questions. Um, And then also with like the self as an artist, as a mortal, like the character of Bianca in her work is like looking for advice and and searching for wisdom in old people, in young people, in nature, potentially in spirituality, um, and really asking like, how do you find purpose? How do you make meaning? Um, So yeah, as I said, it is like highly sentimental and cutesy, but there is a, a gravity to it, which is what elevates it out of like what would otherwise be like too cute or something yeah and her it's funny now like being in a moment where like podcasts have exploded and um at least for me like I listen to so few podcasts that were like produced in a studio and um Bianca was working with audio so much earlier like her early stuff that I've been talking about is like in line with like Sarah Koenig like first season of serial type stuff right so it's produced in the style of like yeah radio lab that era of this American life um like kind of like like StoryCorps-esque in the, you know, back to the obsession of like exploding the profound within the mundane. Um, and and it's this, this moment in culture where we were really obsessed with like the storyteller or storytelling before that had made its buzzword to like like branding in this mass way. And so there was, yeah, just a real emphasis on 
Yeah, on story. Maybe this actually wasn't a cultural moment, but this was right when I was in like my creative writing undergrad program. And like the the structural integrity of the story felt really important. <laughs> and um, and I see that in Bianca's work as well. It's like, it's nothing like what we're doing here at the Kangaroo Court of Stargirl where we're just like letting it rip for an hour with my mic in my apartment, right? It's um, very much not that tradition. <laughs> um, back to the, the vibe of her work, like my main critique of it would be that it's kind of sexless. So like, uh, that's actually not really... A, an earned critique because that's not, I don't think it sets out to be sexy. Um, it's not like a style that I would be obsessed with now because I think I just look for, I'm more interested in expressions of like vanity and horniness and like anger than I am with like, I think, okay, I'll put it this way. At her worst, Bianca's vibes could fit into like an Edward Sharp music video, which I mean, that's just like blasphemous in 2023. Like that just wouldn't, would be so out of, that would be like an object of nostalgia. But um, okay, I'll, I'm just going to leave that there. Um, but okay, before we go deeper into her work, I mentioned that Bianca's reign as a star girl begins within the confines of Garfield High School. To paint a picture of why she loomed so large for me and the particular values that um, she felt emblematic of that were operated as both a dream and a threat for me, um, I want to try to paint the picture of um, the social space of, of our high school. Okay, so the setting is obviously Seattle, <laughs> um, a place that is very cold, wet, dark. I think like dark is the the main memory that I have from being in high school there like wake up in the morning it's pitch black get out of school it's still pitch black like it's just so far north and in the winter it's uh the days are just so short and because it rains so much and the clouds are so low it's just it's just so incredibly dark so <laughs> that is that is the backdrop for it um that being said for those of you who have never been to Seattle it is like staggeringly beautiful first of all the upside of it raining is so much is that it is so green and also like at least as compared to living in New York City where the beauty is really defined by the built world the natural world of Seattle is just so dynamic like in any direction northeast southwest you can see both water and mountains and like big mountains so anyways it's a really beautiful and isolated place to grow up even though it is obviously a major city it's just very homogenous I don't want to say politically but like people tend to think the same there it's pretty pacifist so you're not seeing like kerfuffles it's very kind of like quiet like modesty bay in like always I think and I think that's changing some um I haven't spent extended time there in like many years but I think it is changing some with tech and healthcare industries there have brought people from around the country and around the world like but anyways I can't really speak for the for the changing tides there um 
But anyways, okay, so so to get back to this, so so Garfield High School is a like massive overcrowded public high school in Seattle. Um, it's in the the neighborhoods called the Central District, and this is a historically predominantly black low income neighborhood that it's like one of the classic like seventies education policy tests where they started busing in kids from wealthier, whiter neighborhoods to try to like resource the school very contentious for like adults and uh people that are like taking a sociological approach to looking at the school um as a student there you're obviously aware of this you know it was always told to you like oh it's kind of a school of two schools for example you know like garfield will send like i don't know a dozen plus kids to ivy leagues every year it also has like a low graduation rate overall right things like this like and, and so many other things that i don't even need to list out here i think you can probably infer all of that is true and the experience of being there was just just extremely school spirited and lively and intense and hot. I get I don't mean hot as in like sexy, but I mean it's like fast. <laughs> um and yeah, so the main qualities that I remember about being there was like it was a place of intense school spirit and um, deep pride. Garfield exists among the Seattle Public Schools high schools as like the flagship big school and it has a deep understanding of itself like as the best and as like destined for greatness even though we like other with the exception of like basketball we're not good at sports. <laughs> we're just like the sickest people like we threw the best parties we had the most fun the school was so overcrowded that the administration like they never had any control over us I don't know I just have so many memories of like staging walkouts as students and then it was just like that was what it is like they had no one could control anyone so it was very like I mean I probably got a terrible education but um well actually I know I did when I like talked to my private school friends I'm like oh my god like I was not doing jack shit in high school like it was just complete anarchy all the time like people would be like smoking weed in the classrooms you know and it was very like it was just fun it was all pretty lighthearted and like I said just like fast place to be um but anyways yeah but the sense of hubris among the students is palpable I guess and Garfield is like very connected to its history of greatness and there's a lot of pride like in looking back at it like and like a lot of great people went there like Jimi Hendrix, Quincy Jones, multiple NBA players, um Macklemore although he didn't graduate um actually Mary McCarthy went there which I can't believe that I didn't talk about in her episode she didn't graduate from there either um yeah, I guess it was a place of a lot of celebration and like superiority complex. Um, and I talked about this a little bit when, when was it? I guess in the Zendaya episode when I was talking about euphoria, but the the spirit that euphoria captures about invincibility is what I like, that's what I take from euphoria that feels really resonant of like, feeling like no one could stop me and like yeah just like no fear or respect for authority and such deep trust of self as awesome like <laughs> I just yeah and, and I admit that's just maybe a, like a part of youth more generally um but I feel like it was a very fearless if high risk environment um that I have yeah really fond fond memories of in the macro sense even if when I drill down into like 
relationships and friend groups and like the drama of it obviously that fucking sucked um but yeah so in in a lot of ways I do feel like Garfield feels like a depiction of a classic American high school like we felt like oh like Fast Times at Ridgemont High like seems similar to this (laughs) yeah it was like definitely different different groups were cool it wasn't like it wasn't like football players and cheerleaders type thing like I guess like for sports like basketball was cool as I said like we had a really strong basketball program and soccer kind of though I don't even know if we were that good but like music was really cool at Garfield so like we had a great jazz program and orchestra um being a part of the newspaper which was called the Garfield Messenger and the crown jewel of social hierarchy at Garfield insofar as Bianca is concerned was the Outdoors Club post 84. Okay so the Outdoors Club was a group of kids like I feel like there were probably about like 15 to 20 in each grade we would take trips like either weekend long or sometimes like five days, whatever, um, around the state of Washington, um, either like backpacking, rock climbing, kayaking, like whatever you can think of. Um, and it was this very exclusive club that was very insular, self-involved, and um, and I was a part of it, so I feel like I can say all of this. And um, just of all of the superiority complexes I am I have thus far described, Post was definitely like <laughs> the worst. <laughs> like we really thought we were just like the sickest kids ever. And um, so, yeah, like I said, it was really exclusive to get into. Like how it worked is so the upperclassmen were like the counselors basically. And so we would go like into the forest, like Seattle Public Schools owned a forest like 40 minutes east of Seattle in this place called Issaquah. And you would go on this trip. And you have like upperclassmen counselors and you like, you know, spend the weekend learning outdoor skills, like how to light a fire, how to keep yourself warm, how to um, like put up a tent. Like, I don't even know what I think I was learned like knife throwing, like who fucking knows? It's basically just an excuse to like, you know, chill with no parents around. And uh, I mean, some people actually did have pretty like technical outdoors skills knowledge, um, but a lot of it was just like hanging out and dicking around and chatting. They were completely sober trips, I will say. That actually kind of was a line of tension that everybody upheld, um, which seems insane in retrospect, but um, that that worked somehow. Anyway, so you would go on these couple trips as a freshman and then as a sophomore, you could apply to be a part of the club. And um, I guess they had it as like an elective in school that you didn't have to like actually take the class. Like being in it just meant you got to continue going on the trips and like helping to lead them and, and you know, stepped into the counselor role. Anyways, very competitive pretty snobby as well it's like the type of thing that's like it's so invested in unpretentiousness and low maintenance vibes that it's actually somehow even more pretentious um and yeah oh my god we were all such little shits um and (laughs) anyways I'm belaboring this because it's important for the Bianca specifically and the star girl status that she achieved within Garfield so Bianca was the first and at the time only person who had made post staff meaning that she applied and got in to the club as a freshman and it was this like unprecedented thing where it's like oh my god this girl was just so sick that they broke the rule for her and so how the club works is that you get in as a sophomore or a junior or even as a senior except for this one time when they let in this girl Bianca gave her and through at least my whole time through high school it never happened again so that in and of itself given the status of this club at Garfield was a huge 
thing that elevated her like above all of her peers. And what's more is that knowing that and then learning about her, she like carried the torch for the qualities of a person, but specifically of a girl that the club and the school and the larger environment really revered. And so that obviously was like threatening in the in the moment because it's like, oh my God, like the rules didn't apply to this one girl. Like I wonder if that will ever be able to happen to me. And it's like, okay, no. So what are the qualities that were revered under this system of belief? Um, girls had to be, I think above all, like, low maintenance and just chill and down and game. Um, It was not a place where like princessiness or any type of um, fragility or like I'm baby was like cute at all. Like it really rewarded like an adventurous, um, almost little boy like spirit, honestly, of like getting dirty and diving in and like being super uninhibited and at times almost gross. Like I'm thinking we had all of these like literal eating contests in the school or like we had this thing, I'm forgetting what it was called. Oh, it was called Que Bueno, where you had, it was a burrito eating contest, but your hands were tied behind your back. And like, I remember me and my friend won when we were seniors and we were like literally basking of just like, oh my God, it's like, like, we're the coolest girls ever. Like we ate a burrito with no hands, like faster than anybody else. And we're girls. Like it was really gross. Like, I don't know what was going on. And my mom was extremely appalled for this entire time. She was like, I don't know what is happening, but this is not ladylike, which is true. Anyways, um, yeah, also very like positive and games oriented. Um, so really valuing people who could um, like do pranks and um, and really and cleverness for sure. Like being really funny was like all that we cared about. Like everything that I'm saying just sounds like boyishness. Like I feel like there was a real rejection of like uh, vanity Uh, in any way well that's not even true because it definitely valued performance but you know like we were always doing like these really insane skits and like using our bodies in really crazy way like I feel like we were always just like mooning people like I'm like what even was this vibe anyways um yeah and like we would all just wear like I mean everything fleece right which was I guess in part like supposed to be technical but I don't think it was I think we were just like thought that the sloppiness was cute like I would just wear like fleece leggings and then a like just like an oversized vintage bright Patagonia and like a fleece headband and like Sorel's or like knockoff Uggs that I got at Costco or Tom's, those canvas shoes. Like, I'm not just talking about on the outdoors trips. Like, I would wear that to school every single day. And that was, like, so cool. It's it's dark. And um, anyways, and so obviously, as I've said a million times, I'd never met Bianca. But the fact that she got in as a freshman was evidence that she was just, like, she gave off energy of being so confident, so down, so adventurous, so silly and so positive. And, and the club was like basically 50-50 boys and girls, but it really was like a boys club, you know, and all the girls that were in it, we were like trying to prove ourselves as being as low maintenance and, and as trickstery as the boys. Like that was the whole thing of it. Super looked down upon to like wear makeup. I I literally hadn't gotten a manicure until I was like 21 years old. Like it was, I thought that was like so lowly, which is so hilarious looking back. I'm like, wow, for as like progressive as Seattle is obsessed with thinking itself to be, like 
that was so second wave. Like, why are they, like, not wanting women to wear makeup? It's, like, so punitive and weird. So anyways, like I said, I didn't know Bianca. I don't know the, the specifics of how she was behaving within this context. But the point is that she was a person that was ready available to be projected onto by people like myself in younger grades because she was this, this legend that had defied the rules, perfectly presented herself for this value system that was like so ready to accept her, you know. And even for people like myself who was also in these clubs – in orchestra, on the student newspaper, in the outdoors club. Like, I feel like we were all aware that we were just asymptotically approaching the platonic ideal of Bianca Gaver. Um, anyways, uh, I'm trying to think if I was going to say anything else about this. Oh, well, maybe worth noting that this legend status of her also operated within the um, student newspaper, although that club was a little more diverse and diffuse. So there wasn't this like tyranny of vibe happening as much as with the outdoors club but anyways Bianca had been very successful there as well and written this feature on this um kid who had brain cancer and that feature was was like republished in the Seattle Weekly a magazine in Seattle and then she also won the Brasler prize which is like the national award for high school student reporting so again these things like now as an adult in the world getting into the club as a freshman winning a national high school magazine award these are pretty small fish but at the time when you are like someone like myself who was I mean I'm not proud of this but was intensely aware of and interested in social hierarchy and power dynamics and learning these things about her, like I was clocking them and I was being like, so how can I be successful in these environments? And she was a phantom, right? Like she didn't, she wasn't a person who existed at that school at the time, but there was a cord of relationship that I invented between us, parallels that I was obsessed with trying to draw and, um, and like value that I was trying to extract like that would reflect positively on me just by my like imagined proximity to her. Does this make sense? I mean, I hope this makes sense because this is like the whole point of the podcast that we're talking about with any of these women. Um, But just to like make the point that for as much as we feel these like parasocial relationships that are just products of our own imagination slash slash projection with celebrities, we also feel them with people in our life, right? And they balloon in our brains and they be, they take up a disproportionate amount of space, um, but they are ultimately tools, instruments of seeing the world, instruments of understanding how you want to relate to your environment and the like position of value that you hope to obtain, worry you won't attain, are ashamed because you can't attain, all of these things. Um, they they have a real function, I guess is my point. Um, so let me just check my notes and see if there's anything else I want to say about Garfield. I don't know. That was, I mean, that was a lot. <laughs> well, I guess it's important to note that, and I probably should have said this earlier, that as much as in certain ways I felt successful within the value system of my high school, um, I also felt intensely oppressed by it frustrated by it and like not like kind of phony within it if that makes sense so um I felt like I knew deep down that like I wanted to wear makeup and like be girly and like not feel like my vanity was like pathologized but 
I didn't feel like I had the room to and I was like more invested in being socially successful than it. Okay, okay. This is obvious. This is like what every adolescent goes through. But um, I, I don't feel this way anymore because I'm so distanced from it. But even through like most of my 20s, I had a lot of tension with Seattle as a place because it felt like something that had just like held me back for so long and I resented and I was like, oh, I feel like I'm like playing catch up trying to become myself because I was so stuck in this certain homogenous insular way of thinking about the world and self-presentation so yeah I never feel like I like have hated where I'm from like I don't have the narrative of like wow like thank god I got out of there um but I do feel like the imaginary tension and I don't mean that in terms of conflict but like the taut rope between me and Bianca that that tension is indivisible from my tension with Seattle, right? Not only because it allows me to draw parallels between us because we're from the same place, but also because it relates to the dream and the threat that I ascribe to her because I'm viewing her successes, her shortcomings, my expectations of her through the prism of my complicated relationship with Seattle and with my high school, right? So um, I hope that makes sense. Um, And I also should have said at the beginning that Bianca now lives in Brooklyn and has for many years. So um, we are like, oh my God, I just like looked out my window, like as if I would see her walking down the street. (laughs) Um, But anyways, like I know she's, she's, uh, she's in some ways closer than ever before. Um, Yeah. And, you know, I keep saying like the legend status of Bianca, like this existed after I left Garfield as well. It's not like I'm only clinging to this idea of her as like the coolest girl ever from within those four walls of Garfield. Like so many times in other cities, I've like met new people and they're like, oh, long shot. But do you know Bianca gave her like even like last year I was at um, what's that honore? club honoré or bar whatever in Bushwick and I met this guy and found out he he found out I was from Seattle and he's like oh same thing long shot do you know Bianca and I was like oh my god what and he was like yeah he's like yeah I lead like a walking group and she came on a walk in New York and she's just a super cool girl and I was like you don't say you know so like I do feel like there's a spectral quality to her um that that I've always found myself (laughs) near (laughs) in some form or another um okay let me see what else well I guess I didn't even say what she looks like um okay I'll do this quickly okay Bianca is tall she's clearly tall she's kind of like dirty blonde kind of messy hair it's fairly straight but you know how I always said it's like somehow always winter in her videos and posts like I feel like it's always kind of like windswept and all kind of like tangly and messy but it looks very it looks nice. Um, she has blue eyes and she has freckles. I think the freckles are like a key striking point of her face um, because it kind of keeps her always looking really like youthful and natural. And um, like I'm trying to think if I've ever seen a picture of her wearing makeup. Definitely like a red lipstick, but I like I can't imagine her with eye makeup on. Yeah, I mean, it's so hard because I – like in my mind, she like stopped at like 2015, 2016 when I stopped paying close attention to her. So like even when I look on her and I have followed her for years, when I look at her Instagram, I feel like I'm just like, I almost don't see her in her modern self because I'm so 
clouded by my memories of her when I was really obsessed with her. Does this make sense? Like, I'm like, okay, I know that's your face. I know your fashion has obviously like evolved, but like in my mind, you're just always wearing like skinny jeans tucked into like big winter boots and then like an olive colored like oversized jacket and then an infinity scarf that's either in like like royal blue or cherry red and you're always drinking tea like and it's just like if you're not in that I just don't even know what to be like doing with you (laughs) um I don't know if I already mentioned this but she went to Middlebury and um god even that I remember like feeling so triggered by like For some reason, like, the Nescacs just, like, felt so oppressive to me when I was in college. And I guess that's because I, like, ended up going to a really, like, preppy southern school, which I was initially really, like, into just because it was different. And then I feel like I was watching all these girls at Middlebury and Bowdoin and whatever other ones are related being like, wow, I, like, would have probably just been more successful if I just, like, stayed on the route that was set up for me at at the Garfield Outdoors Club and just like kept hitting that shit home. I would have been so much further ahead on this vibe that's clearly valued there too or something. Whereas at Vanderbilt, I just like, I was trying to shirk the context of Garfield and then it was just really weird for a long time and it was dark. Anyways, um, yeah. But I think actually maybe like if you think about Middlebury type girls, that is probably a, a good point of reference for what I'm trying to describe at the high school level and um I I definitely think like the high school level was way rowdier and like probably more sick I'm just assuming okay um so now let's shift gears and I want to talk about her work itself um so this is not just related to her being a star girl because she was awesome, but because she was creating work that was, um, as I said, kind of a, like a guiding light for me when I was in college and super lost with what I even wanted to be up to. Um, so I mentioned at the beginning this video called The Scared is Scared, um, which was a video where she interviewed like, I think like a six or seven year old little boy. I think she may have been like babysitting him or something. Um, This is when she was still at Middlebury. So it was um, recorded up in Vermont. And she interviewed him and he tells this story of this little mouse and this big bear and their friends. And they're like doing all of these funny little things together and then I forget the the inflection point but then it goes from just this story of these two friends to this kind of like philosophical advice you know by a six-year-old so a boy starts talking about like I think the famous line is like the scared is scared of things you like and so he is giving advice for how to tackle fear basically so back to what I was saying at the beginning about how um how Bianca's work is um taking subject matter that is very cutesy and childlike and then really sincerely engaging with the possibility of finding like profound ideas within this mundane day-to-day or in this instance like a child's ideas about about the world and about how to deal with your emotions um anyway so that's the story and then it's like a full live action thing like she has actors and costumes and original music and some of it is done stop motion and some of it is like people acting things out um 
And the reason that I found this was not because I was like tracking her through Garfield people at the time. Like this was like so early Instagram. I definitely was not connected to her. But because a friend of mine was like applying to Middlebury and in the school's like uh, kind of like advertorial email blast to encourage people to apply, they were highlighting her her work. This was not a friend who went to Garfield or was even from Seattle. And she was like, wait, like I looked this chick up, like I like, think she went to your high school. And I was like, of fucking course. Anyways, so that video started me to pay really close attention to her. Like she was the first person from my high school, even though there were a lot of successful people, she was the first person like making art in the general realm that I felt like I wanted to go towards. Like this all sounds really not concrete and that is how it felt also. But um, most people that I knew, they either had like a very specific craft, like they had like played jazz in high school and then like went to Juilliard or they were like, God, I don't even know what people were doing. I guess I feel like a lot of people were just like coders and then a lot of people were like, doing maybe like grassroots political organizing I don't remember but I the point is is that when I saw this video and I latched to Bianca I was like this is the only chick from my shared context who is like vaguely doing something that I feel a compulsion toward even if I can't explain it I'm taking no action on it etc even I have even though I have no way to legitimize myself I feel like I'm similar to this chick um anyway so I started I started uh paying closer attention to her um and actually hi okay sorry I just got interrupted but uh carrying on (laughs) um other other videos of hers that I that were a big deal to me um she did this one called holy cow lisa where she had same same kind of setup as the scared is scared where she had interviewed a professor of hers i think um about like a long lost love and then same thing kind of like video illustrated it that one is a little more pared down it's not this like full theatrical production in the way that the scared is scared is um but that that same tone of like taking something very like simple and universal and magnifying it and making it really um like deep I guess um but it's all very like cute and lighthearted at the same time so this you know when I was saying it all fits in the like twee umbrella where it's like yeah just it's so earnest in its like quirks if that makes sense um and actually that one, Holy Cow Lisa, I was so obsessed with it. I literally stole a line from it for like a project that I did my junior year of college. And like I couldn't I couldn't write my own line. And I just like lifted a complete thing from, <laughs> from her movie. Um, so yeah. Um, so there's that. Um, then the other thing that I think was most significant of hers from this time was she wrote, directed, produced an ad campaign video for Rachel Antonoff's spring 2014 line. So at the time, Rachel was doing this for every season. And actually, Lena Dunham had produced the one, the um, the season prior. And it's actually like way worse. Um, but um, this is the time that Lena and Jack were together. So we, we, we see the multiverse. Anyways, the um, the video was called Crush. I think that was actually maybe like the the tagline of of the line or something and um 
it's just beyond it being like a crazy success story for Bianca, you know, like I had been following her on Vimeo, whatever. And then I like, then she did this and it was like, whoa, she's like seriously leveling up and getting like big people that want to work with her. I remember it like almost like hurt me in the chest when I saw it because I was like both like so proud of her and also just like so jealous. Um, and it's so good. Um, but even beyond that, it's a just such a relic of the time. Like it is it is a stacked crew. Okay, let me just like tell you the people in this. So um, it's obviously it's Rachel Antonoff's line in the movie are Jack Antonoff, Jillian Jacobs, Mae Whitman, Miles Heiser, Jenny Slate, Lori Simmons, their mom, Sarah Ramos. Like if you know anything about that whole crew so it's like the, a bunch of those are like actors from parenthood that were all friends and then with the Antonoff intertwiningness and then the Dunhams it's like a crazy moment in time and just so like that's obviously like a, a Hollywoodized version and way less like low maintenance forest nymphy than Bianca but it is like a really natural fit because all of them were like especially their internet presence at that time is very like like, I feel like they would post pictures of like picking their nose or something gross, but it would be like so quirky girl probs, I guess. Um, and and that even is like a trajectory out of what I was describing about the vibe of uh, girls in the outdoors club at my high school, right? Where it's like we're doing all of these gross things with this like wink and this like silly little bent. And um, yeah, I guess it's just like we're not like other girls, right? We're not too afraid to like burp or like just like I don't even know <laughs> all of it. Um, anyways, um, yeah, and and that and that movie is the same setup again. So she had interviewed the Antonoff's parents about how they fell in love and then created this whole video set to that interview. Um, Rachel Antonoff was doing this very like preppy, quirky, because she still kind of is. Everything felt like cartoonish and either like red, light pink, mint or white. <laughs> so it would be like crew neck sweaters with like, like a funky design on it. That was honestly like maybe vaguely political. Like I feel like she was early on the like uterus graphics type stuff. Um, before we really got to like the wing era of, of that. Um, anyways, or like, yeah, collared shirts with car a bunch of cartoon faces on them, like tapered starchy trousers, really like boxy cut floral dresses. Yeah. Or, and the, like shirts that said something on them, like the ones that they say like crush or mash or like something like that. So it had this just like childlike cartoonish, like, I feel like a pattern of hers was literally like a, um, like a crossword puzzle, like as a like pattern on a pair of pants you know it's like that kind of shit um yeah and the <laughs> this actually seems a little bit out of scope this could have made there could have been a closer match here but um the like outro song of that video is when we first met by hello goodbye so you get the picture <laughs> um and so that came out i guess in 2014 so yeah, this is all in a, like a really tight time period that I'm discussing. Like when I when I first started putting together this episode, in my mind, this had been like a six year period, like three years ago, but it was actually like a three year period, like eight years ago, almost like a decade ago, actually. Um, so 
yeah, that's pretty wild. But I guess it speaks to the level of fixation that I had with her. And also just like that time of life, right? Where you're like, for me in college, like so lost feeling like I was, I knew that I had all of this potential, but I had no location for it. And I was so indecisive and like, inadvertently self-destructive that I could never make any forward motion and so I spent so much time just like fixating on her and that sounds like an additional waste of time but it really was a grounding force like and a, and a guiding light like I said like I really relied on Bianca's success to like keep me having a vision of like what I could get up to and you know, it's hilarious to think about that now because I'm not doing anything in a similar tradition to her, but I do still credit her. I do think that it played a part in like getting me to New York, like getting me to write, getting me to like explore extreme voiciness within my work, um, even as that like ended up totally diverging from Bianca's voice. But I do think that she helped me a lot with that. Um like when I'm thinking of the the cast of characters of Stargirls, not in terms of like personality wise who she's most related to, but like in terms of how I used them, it's definitely Gia and Lena Dunham. And so in that sense, it's like, oh, then obviously she was a motivator and an inspiration. Um, and I mentioned that I had emailed her once, um, which I didn't even remember, but I was searching her name in my email in preparation for this because I wanted to see if I had ever like sent an email about her, which I had. I had like sent her videos to my parents all throughout college and been like, look what this girl they went to my high school made, like blah, blah, blah. Anyways, but I emailed her one time because um, when I was like, I think like a sophomore in college, I had a blog with my friend from high school and she was also obsessed with Bianca. And so we sent her the blog and like, asked for feedback <laughs> and she was like it's awesome I love this like she was like super sweet about it but it's like looking back it's so embarrassing I'm like oh my god <laughs> the quality that she was putting out and I'm we're literally like sending her our wordpress being like do you think our like jokes are funny it's like really hilarious but um like I said at some point I stopped paying close attention to her I don't know if it was like kind of when I graduated college and to fast forward um yeah I knew that she was like working for Adobe for a while um and like I said she's done work for This American Life and The Daily and um then as I was preparing for this I was looking at her most recent stuff so she has her own podcast called Constellation Prize as I mentioned um and it's actually like I don't know if it's produced by or like distributed by or in some way funded by related to the believer magazine um so and the believer is not something that i like i've never published there but it's like that feels very like close in in the world that i move in so that was kind of funny to be like whoa what like another like stones throw away um i guess it feels similar to me because it's still like that exploding the mundane kind of thing um but it's much heavier um it's lost a lot of that like childlike wonder kind of thing and also her as a character is much different like um yeah maybe feels like more like wary um the the two pieces of that that I liked the most one is this four-part series called Night Walking 
It's a cool setup. She did like a, a back and forth letter exchange with the writer Terry Tempest Williams, who lives. Oh, shoot. I should know this. I feel like she lives in like New Mexico or like somewhere out there. The project was to go on a night walk every single night and then reflect on your experience, write each other letters, which they then like recorded um, and are part of the podcast and just just document your experience doing that and what you observe and what you think about and whatever. And um, I'm kind of surprised at like the vulnerability of her because I think that was one limit of her earlier work was like the the cutesiness even when it would get sincere and universal it wasn't that interior um and in the night walking series Bianca talks a lot more about really being lonely really wanting to find romance really wanting to know for sure if her work is going to amount to anything one of the things that I always really respected about her work was that it was so um so not self-conscious like I mean you know self-consciousness and awkwardness and self-awareness are like themes within the larger twee value system that she's exploring but she wasn't like second guessing herself like it really seemed like she felt like she had a divine right to make and she was extremely prolific and I guess that's another similarity to like Lena Dunham as well of just the you can tell when an artist isn't trying to legitimize their project um by like over narrativizing it they're just like doing it and then doing some more of it you know um the other one that I would recommend from Constellation Prize is um, it's called Two Years with Franz. And basically she got access to like two years worth of tapes that that the poet Franz Wright, um, he's like a Pulitzer Prize winning poet, anyways, that he had like recorded of himself in his final years before he died. And he's like a really like angry old man anyways and so she listens to all of them and interviews his um wife who's still living and just really exploring like end stage of life regrets and fears and yeah and again back to the question of that she was posing in the night walking series about like what is my art gonna amount to like I don't know she talks about like wow this guy was like you know by some metrics like one of the most celebrated and best poets of his generation and he still died broke and angry and alone um and it seems to really affect her um so I guess maybe that's like what I respect I respect that she just puts herself in as a character and doesn't try to explain that choice like I think a lot of people just do some weird modesty core gymnastics when they like they're like too fearful to just like make it about themselves but like she doesn't seem to have shame around just putting herself into the project and being like well this, this is ultimately about my search for meaning um and I think that that's cool I'm trying to think like of the stuff if there's anything that I really didn't connect to I mean it's all just in it's in such a different stylistic mode than the things I tend to listen to now and it's also um just dealing with like such different topics um yeah the fourth part of the night walking series I didn't super connect with that one she's in New York City whereas in the other ones she's um in Vermont I like her in the Vermont for as much as the Middlebury was like a tough pill for me to swallow that was a me issue and now I just like I like it when she's there it just the the image of her coalesces more but in the episode where she's in New York she's like walking around and like interviewing like 
skaters in the park and like bodega workers and whatever. And it was just got a little bit humans of New York core for me. And I was like, Oh, okay. I'm a little, I'm feeling a little scared of it, but, um, it's fine. (laughs) Um, it's, it, it honestly was a pretty wild journey to familiarize myself with her recent work over the past month or so. Um, just cause she's someone that I had spent so much time thinking about looking at listening to like a decade ago. And like, it almost felt like I was like getting back in contact with an ex or something. And I was like, Whoa, like I see your face and I know that it's you, but I'm searching for the you that I used to think that I knew something about, you know? And also it was like, Whoa, like even though we were always so different and I knew that, but for so long I was like trying to be like you. And then like, you know, at some point I dispensed with that and like found other people to try to be like, and and then like now I'm like, Whoa, we have like seriously diverged. Like I can't imagine anyone ever being like, you guys remind me of each other. Yeah, like she recently rode her bike across the US and made like a zine and like t-shirts out of it that I don't know, really like cutesy illustrations and like whatever. And I was just like, wow, that would that would never occur to me to do that. Like it just does not appeal to ride my bike across the United States. But like that's the type of thing that like if she had done that when I was in college, I would be like, okay, I guess that's if I want to be successful, I just hide this is what I have to do. Um yeah. To Reflect on her under the star girl analysis a little bit more um, in terms of the dream and the threat. And I'm transporting myself back to the time when it was all really hot and urgent to me. But I think the dream of Bianca was that she represented like the best case scenario of breaking free of the like literal confines of the world that I grew up in, which as I was saying, like I felt very held back by but without jettisoning those vibes entirely or like burning bridges along the way if that makes sense so so she illuminated for me this idea that I could retain the value system and therefore high valuation of the system of belief we grew up in but I could also like leave it at the same time. And that was really powerful for me at that critical young age when I had just left home where I was feeling like I feel confined by this, but like, I don't even know what I'm running toward. I'm just running away from something. And so to see her be successful was like legitimately like stabilizing for me and grounding to be like, oh, okay. Like I'm seeing the lily pad that I can jump to, even if it's not exactly right, even if I'm not going to be that successful, even if whatever, like I'm like, I'm seeing a model that has enough like known factors from our shared historical context that I can like safely take a leap and, and see where I land. So that was definitely the dream. Um, and I also think these are like sub dreams, but all, just physically, she represented this kind of this effortless health kind of thing, um, like a little bit of hippie chick stuff. Like, I don't know if she was a yogi or like who knows what her like diet actually was, but I always like projected onto her just like taking care of herself and didn't have this like self-destructive tendencies that I would randomly see in myself with like, yeah, treating my body badly, like you know procrastinating like partying too much whatever like in my mind she just like was only moving forward um in a way that didn't feel like a la taylor swift overly gripping the steering wheel like obsessed with like her ambition and her hard work and her discipline like it just it everything seemed very effortless with the way that she moved through the world um and or at least i think like 
her effortlessness, even if it was a figment of my imagination, was really important to me because I, I like needed to believe that as part of the whole package, you know, because I was so wanting to get to a place of like easeful health and creation and beauty within myself. And I felt like everything was just so, so like clunky and like one step forward, two steps back, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. And then the threat as with all of them is kind of the inverse of that, um, which was what she did isn't available to me. Right. So if it ended up being true for her to transcend the like boundaries of our high school or Seattle or just the Pacific Northwest vibes or whatever, um, she's like, she could retain the best of those things and transcend it and like bring those values with her and that way of being and even that mode of like presenting yourself visually and bring that into her next work and take herself to the next level. Whereas for me, I felt like it like it wasn't true for me to hold on to that many of the values. So in order to transcend it, I had to abandon that vibe altogether, right? I mean, like, yeah, her reign for me ended a long time ago. So I don't feel like that that tense cord of connection between her and I anymore. And I also, as I mentioned, just like feel so dissimilar and like yeah, I guess that's a part of, of, of Stargirl that we haven't talked about so much yet is like the loss of a star. Like I've talked about it probably the most with Gia because that was a relationship that as we, a, a relationship that um, as we started to diverge, like caused me a lot of internal strife. And um, I don't remember that happening with Bianca. I feel like for me, I was just like slowly started stepping into myself and so then didn't, wasn't so reliant on my idea of her. But um that's that's a part of the life cycle that maybe we can lean more into because sometimes it can be legitimately tragic to lose a star girl um and really destabilizing um like now when i look at bianca's work or just like the way she presents herself online or something like i feel mostly just a sense of like peace and like i feel like wow, like, look at this person that I used to think I knew so well. And like, she's still doing so much awesome shit. But now I have a life that I love. And like, I feel like an immense gratitude toward her um, for unknowingly, like providing me with so much direction when I was so young. Now, while we're so different, we're not in conflict or even in conversation. I mean, until, until now, until she sees this. Um, and like, yeah, I feel like for, you know, for so long, the type of chick that I felt she represented, like from my high school, like I felt there, were, I just had a lot of feelings about that. And it caused me a lot of stress about how I couldn't measure up to it. But I also kind of didn't even like it. So why would I try to be like it? But I should just try to be like it because I know this whole community of people that really values it, blah, 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 blah. Um, and now I'm like, wow, everything shakes out how it's supposed to be it really connects me to the sense of like harmony in the universe or something um yeah I guess the one thing that I would say I do feel lost around with her is that like I kind of don't want her to be like just part of a team like when I see her having production credits or reporting credits on like the daily or something I'm like 
we know I like it when it's just a singular you like I just like I'm I feel more passionate about the Bianca Gaver legend that I knew about in high school this standout girl who like the rules didn't apply to because she was just so awesome and prolific and like driven and so I'm like wait that doesn't seem like the right social role for you to be like part of a production team um so anyways so that's why I'm glad she still has Constellation Prize so she still has like her her thing um and the cover art for that is like her I mean it's an illustration of her um in this like red coat like holding a recording kit like surrounded by all these like vines and leaves and things which feels that maps to the way I remember her um but yeah just some final like larger star girl takeaways I guess is that you know, I'm always talking about like woman as lens and um, I often use that to mean like woman as lens into larger cultural trends or tensions. Like we can look at someone like Kim Kardashian and then um, by by looking at her and the way the public treats her um, and the narrative surrounding her, learn something about what's going on in culture more broadly or something. But this one made me realize that lens is also literally like using them as an eyepiece into culture. Like at the time that I was obsessed with Bianca, like her work was like, she was like the port into what I deemed cool or relevant. Like I was like, got so obsessed with all the people in the, in the Rachel Antonoff crush video, just because she had touched that. Right. Like, so the outsized influence that she had on me and on my perception of what was going on in culture. Like I was literally using her as a lens, as an eyepiece and being like through Bianca, that's the only truth I know, you know, (laughs) like, so that's just a a new layer of things. Um, yeah, but you know, it's like, so my fixation on her is what determined my taste at the time. Um, which is really wild to think about like of all of the forces of culture that are like creating this pressurized experience of being live and like charting your path to put so much on one girl and be like whatever you do is what I think is going on is crazy but it's honestly not dissimilar to like when you're in a relationship right and it's like that single person ends up determining so much of what you even consume because you're so fixated on them and want to like appeal to them so yeah it's kind of it's pretty warped um anyways so yeah that's what I think and to Bianca um yeah, I wonder if you know, even from Garfield, like how revered you were. You were a mythic figure, and um, I salute you. Um, okay, cool. Well, thank you guys for listening. Um, <laughs> you know the drill. Bye.